Yay old man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And once again, this show is absurdly late. And I imagine that for the foreseeable future, it will remain being absurdly late, because the first extra piece of information I want to divulge in this particular episode is we have a new member of the family in a broader sense. Last weekend we came into the possession of an eight-week-old kitten, a three-quarters Bengal named Purdy, who, in common with many Bengal cats, is very hunter orientated she pounces on absolutely everything she is very very energetic and she chews a lot of stuff which includes unfortunately a lot of wires so since i have become the primary watchdog over this energetic and mischievous feline It has proved quite difficult to get any time to record, because any time I try and start with Purdy in the room, she tries to chew the microphone cables and the laptop power cables and everything like that, and it's just impossible to get anything done. She is incredibly cute, and I wouldn't change it for anything, but it has meant that I have not been able to sit down and find some time to record for nearly a week now. So, yeah, that is the reason that this is very, very late, and I think shows going on into the future will be incredibly late as well, because I will be kitten-sitting for quite some time, I think. So that's the latest reason why this show is late. But it's here now, and I have four cinematic films and two streaming films to review this particular week. We have the documentary The Princess, which I saw last Thursday night in a special preview screening, which was annoying for reasons I'll get onto in a minute, but not nearly as annoying as last Friday at the cinema, which was one of the most disheartening days at the cinema I have ever, ever had. When I watched Minions The Rise of Gru, followed immediately by the Swedish Oscar submission Tigers. And that back-to-back screening experience was very, very depressing and very frustrating. I will be talking a lot later in the show about gentle minions and how disruptive and ill-mannered these TikTok wannabes are, but yes, more on that later. 
And also the disheartening, or mildly disheartening experience I had about Tigers. But yes, that was a frustrating day. And the fourth cinematic film I want to talk about in this particular episode is the very controversial Australian film Night Tram, which I saw through extra-legal means earlier in the year for Oscar deliberations and did buy a ticket to this week, or actually it was last week in a preview at the Little, but... Yes, I will be releasing my full review of Night Tram, as well as a streaming movie, the second initial streaming movie available through Paramount Plus here in the UK, three months. And I also found time to watch a foreign language film on my tablet as I was heading over to Bristol. I decided to watch the Norwegian action comedy Blasted whilst I was heading over on my way to Bristol in order to catch up with the anime film Pompo the Cinephile, which again I saw through extra legal means earlier in the year and wanted to actually pay for. And in that particular case, I also wanted a chance to watch the English dub. And since I'm probably not going to get another chance to talk about it, I would just like to say once more that Pompo the Cinephile is excellent. The English dub is just as good as the Japanese. They did an excellent job in translation. And I love the way that it uses anime tropes of magical, mystical combat. The way the visual style works in a typical high fantasy anime. Yet it's about filmmaking. I mean, yes, he's wielding a sword, but he's wielding a sword to edit film. And all these different kinds of things and the obsession you need to make a film. It really is one of the best films about the filmmaking process I've ever seen. And the more I think about it, the more I think that Pompo the Cinephile might actually end up as one of my top 10 films of the year. So yeah, once again, I urge you to check out Pompo the Cinephile. And the other film I watched that Saturday afternoon over in Bristol was a film which was screened as part of the Queer Vision Festival at the Watershed in Bristol, a Finnish film which is being released in the English-speaking world under the title Girl Picture, which is not nearly as good a title as its literal translation, Girls, 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 but yes, if you do get a chance to watch the Finnish film Girl Picture, that was very good as well. So that's how I spent my Saturday watching those couple of films. and the Norwegian film blasted on my tablet, but yes, in this episode I will be reviewing the films The Princess, Minions The Rise of Gru, Tigers, Night Tram, Three Months, and Blasted. And without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen I'll start my cinematic odysseys for this week with... The Princess, which I saw at a special preview screening on Thursday night. I was somewhat confused by this. I mean, it looked like a proper cinematically released movie, but the only screenings I could see were on Thursday night with a satellite Q&A with the director. That was actually explained once I sat down and watched the movie because... This is a Sky documentary. That was one of the first title cards that came up, which annoyed me rather a lot, since it means that I could have just wasted a couple of weeks and watched it on Sky documentaries. 
But regardless, I did make a trip to the cinema to see it on Thursday night. However, I didn't stay around for the Q&A with the director via satellite because I wasn't honestly that interested, even though it is a director I respect. This movie was directed by Ed Perkins, who has an Oscar nomination in his past for his documentary short Black Sheep, and he also directed the excellent documentary which you can find on Netflix, Tell Me Who I Am, and that I strongly recommend. But this documentary is yet another retelling of the story of Princess Diana. This one, a documentary which only uses footage from the time. There are no title cards, there's no voiceover, it is just archive footage. Most of it from newsreels and opinion pieces and talking heads from the time. Some home movies. The opening of this film is a group of Australian tourists on the streets of Paris shooting each other, you know, this is what we did on our holidays. And then the final thing we see in the little prologue is, oh, why are all those cars outside the Ritz Paris? And then later in the film, we have home movies of a group of gay guys playing cards with each other. And they, there's a TV on in the background that says, oh, look, Princess Diana's crashed. And, you know, they're making a little dark jokes. But then once it is confirmed that Princess Diana has died, they instantly stop playing cards and just glued to the television. And it's really interesting seeing natural real-time reactions to that happening and i mean where ed perkins found that footage i do not know i mean whether he sent out a message saying anybody got any home movies of princess diana or involving princess diana but however they got it it was really really interesting and and we have all of these pieces of footage from the time telling the story of princess diana and her marriage and her life And the thing that most strongly comes across as I was watching this documentary, The Princess, is how easy it is to create a narrative simply using already existing footage. Choosing exactly the right piece of footage, editing it together with different pieces of footage, juxtaposing different things. In retrospect, we can see exactly what Ed Perkins is trying to do. Even right from the start, we can see the tension and the awkwardness in the relationship between Princess Diana and Prince Charles. These media interviews, I mean, most of them very fawning and very monarchist, but the clipped, tense, terse responses that both Charles and Diana are giving. In retrospect, we can see there was tension right from the start of this marriage. And even before the marriage, I mean, after this little prologue of these Australian tourists in Paris, we have a title card saying the princess. And then the next piece of footage we have is from before the marriage. And Diana Spencer, the 19-year-old Diana Spencer, is being hounded by the press, walking from her front door to her car, going to her job as a nanny. And people are bombarding her with questions. Are you going to get engaged? Are you going to get engaged? Will you confirm that Prince Charles is going to marry you? I mean, 
tell us the truth, tell us everything. And it's just bombarding this 19-year-old girl with questions. I mean, basically the same question over and over and over again, as she's just trying to get to work. And this is even before the marriage. And there's all these things that blend in together. I mean, at one point, it is apparently stated by, I think they said it was her uncle, that she was a virgin as she was going into marriage. Why the fuck does that matter in 1981? And yet this is still the attitude we have, or we had at the time. This deference to the monarchy, this deference to royalty. It was still there, and in retrospect, it was clear. I mean, as and as it is said later on in the documentary, the only reason that Charles married Diana was to provide an heir. It was a dynastic marriage, and a dynastic marriage in the late 20th century. This kind of bullshit still went on, and to me, I think we've moved past that now, but at the time, even in 1981, it was still vitally important that we have a dynastic marriage. And, yeah, it's, it's depressing seeing how little things had changed between the Middle Ages and 1981. But the constant media presence, the constant media pressure... I think Ed Perkins did a really interesting thing in showing the royal wedding. The overwhelming majority of the footage of the wedding is not footage of the wedding itself, but of people watching the wedding on television. So we, the audience of the documentary, are observing the observers of the wedding on television, because it is not a marriage, it is a media event. And you know, telling it in that way is very interesting, and it constantly reminds you of this young woman was thrust into a world where she was suddenly one of the most famous women in the world, arguably the most famous woman in the world. And what does that do to you? How does that pressure manifest? And the fact that her husband did not love her at all, how does that affect you as well? One of the pieces of footage that isn't shown through the television of the royal wedding is apparently in the commentary of the royal wedding, Dimbleby or whoever it was says, oh yes, recently the prince and princess have been staying at the Wiltshire home of Andrew Parker Bowles with his wife Camilla. Yeah, and again, in retrospect, we can see that coming. And I think it's a very, very telling moment that the afternoon after Prince Harry was born, Prince Charles didn't stay at the hospital with his wife and new son. He instead went off to play polo, a polo event which the footage from the time shows that Camilla Parker Bowles was present at. So, basically, as soon as Prince Charles had an heir and a spare, he did not give a shit about his wife. And, yeah, what does that do to you? And seeing all the things which are going on in the marriage, and in context, seeing all the things which are going on in life. I mean, we have footage of the race riots of the early 1980s. We have footage of trips to Australia at a time when republicanism was on the rise. And once Charles and Diana went to Australia, 
suddenly everybody was monarchist again. And eventually, as the marriage starts breaking down, we have you know, television interviews, dueling television interviews between Prince Charles and Princess Diana, dueling books being released, talking about infidelities and all this kinds of stuff. You know, the squidgy tapes, for example. I mean, it's... It all gets very unseemly. And, yeah, I think what, what another thing that this film demonstrates is the change in attitudes towards the monarchy. At the start, in the 1980s, we had still an archaic view of deference to royalty and the expectation and the assumption that if you are a royal, you are a little bit protected. But then, as the tabloid press, the gutter press, gets more and more powerful, we have that deference starting to fall away, and particularly when the royals themselves are putting stuff out into public, that kind of stuff just falls away. And basically attacking each other, this marriage collapsing, imploding in full public display with hordes of paparazzo surrounding this couple, their attitude being that if somebody like Princess Diana every now and again uses the press to her advantage, then that gives us the right to hound her every single second of every single day and trying to get photos we can sell. And we all know how that ended up in an underpass in Paris. So, yeah, I think Ed Perkins did an excellent job of putting his thesis together, of making the statements he wanted to make about Princess Diana, about her marriage, and particularly about the public attitude towards Princess Diana. And you know, the very fact that people would still want to watch a documentary about Princess Diana in 2022, I think that in and of itself is a statement. The film itself is a statement, a little bit like Michael Haneke's Funny Games, I said. So you want to watch this? Okay, I will give it to you. And that kind of seems to be what Ed Perkins is also saying with this film. And yeah, I think he does it well. Of this type of documentary, I think Ed Perkins does an excellent job of putting it together. It, it doesn't really bring anything new to the story of Princess Diana. I mean, at this point, what can bring anything new to the story of Princess Diana? But it does make you consider things from slightly different angles, from slightly different perspectives. And I think it does a good job. So, yeah, I did like The Princess. I mean, as it turns out, I didn't need to go to the cinema to watch it. I'm assuming that at some point in the very near future, it will be available on Sky Documentaries. And I think, certainly, if you can watch it for free, it is definitely worth checking out. So for me, The Princess is a pretty strong, pretty high meh. And then we come to my experiences last Friday. So there were two films that I wanted to see at the Odeon. There was one screening of the Swedish film Tigers, which I wanted to see, on at the Odeon. And since I've got my limitless card and I didn't have to go all the way over to Bristol to watch it, which I was planning to do, then I thought, oh, good, I can stay in Bath and watch Tigers just using my limitless card. So that was a 6.15 showing. And knowing this, I was going to see that. I thought, okay, I may as well see the other film I wanted to see, Minions, The Rise of Gru, just before that screening. So I went to the 4.20 screening of Minions, The Rise of Gru. 
as it turns out, I booked exactly the same seat in exactly the same screen for these two back-to-back screenings. Now, when I go to the cinema, particularly when I go to a multiplex cinema, I tend to try and go very early in the morning, or as early as I can in the morning, to try and avoid the crowds, because large crowds in cinemas have a tendency to be bad behaved. In my experience, the smaller the crowd, the less likely there are to be problems. So... Given my choice, I would have tried to watch Minions Rise of Goats at like 10 o'clock in the morning. But with the Swedish film Tigers immediately afterwards, 4.20 was the screening I went to. And as soon as I rolled up to the 4.20 screening of Minions, I knew I was in trouble. It was a very, very full screen. And a lot of kids were present wearing school uniforms. Or, I'm assuming that the majority of them were wearing school uniforms, so I'll be going back to that in a minute. But I thought, oh god, this has the potential to be really, really bad. But I did not realise how bad it was going to be. At every single thing on the screen in Minions Rise of Guru, there was a huge reaction from this crowd. The Universal logo comes up, and there was a huge cheers the illumination studios logo comes up and there were huge cheers there was a background hum of conversation throughout the entirety of the film there were occasional shouts and scuffles and whatever throughout the course of the film there was somebody's phone who went off at least twice i think it was the same person because it was a distinctive ringtone but a phone went off twice And it was just completely unruly, loud, obnoxious, everything. A couple of rows in front of me, there was a little girl. And she didn't last the entire film. I'm not sure if this was directly related to the incredibly bad behaviour from the large crowd around her. But before the end of the film, she was bawling her eyes out and had to be taken out by her parents. And she was like four. There's every chance this was her first cinematic experience, and it was ruined by these idiots just causing a ruckus. It really was the most badly behaved cinema screen I think I've ever been in. Later in the evening, for reasons I'll be coming on to later, I was talking to a member of staff at the Odeon Cinema, and she said that... The reason for this unruly behaviour was a TikTok trend where teenagers dress up in suits and formal dresses or, if you can't get home in time, school uniforms. I think that there was a lot of school uniforms, but I'm assuming there must have also been suits in there as well. But you get dressed up in formal clothes as gentle minions, and then do stuff in the cinema screen for TikTok. Which annoys me. That is not something you should be doing in a cinema screen. You shouldn't be concerned about getting likes on TikTok or doing the latest trend. You should be watching the damn movie and not disturbing everybody else around you. And this member of staff, she was saying that they'd been having difficulties with this all day 
And as she was talking to us, there were two of the bigger screens at the Odeon Cinema, which were currently showing Minions. And she didn't say outright, but I'm guessing that they'd had unruly behaviour as well. In the week since I've been to the Odeon Cinema, certain Odeon Cinemas, and I'm not exactly sure if the one in Bath is one of them, but certain Odeon Cinemas have started putting up notices saying, if unaccompanied teenagers wearing suits show up to watch Minions, you will not be granted access, because they've had so much trouble with these unruly TikTok trenders. Yeah, I mean, if the screening I was in is anything to go by, these idiots are just ruining it for the rest of us, simply so they can get noticed online. And that's just not the way you should be treating your cinema screens. I, I was so annoyed and frustrated by this. I mean, to the extent that the next day, when I went over to Bristol to watch Pompo the Cinephile at the Showcase Cinema Deluxe in the centre of Bristol, I noticed in the queue in front of me that there were several teenagers wearing suits. So I felt the need to talk to them. I said to them, look, if you're going to do your TikTok thing, don't be a dick about it. You are ruining it for the rest of us. I mean, there was you know, three boys and two girls all wearing dresses and suits. And, and I'd never seen them before in my life, but I needed to say something to them. I mean, they probably didn't pay any attention to me whatsoever, but I felt the need to try. And the fact that as I went up and bought my ticket to Pompo the Cinephile, the guy behind the counter was you know, smiling approvingly at me. They'd obviously had difficulties with these idiots as well. So, yeah, don't be a dick is basically my response to this. I don't strongly, strongly object to doing something in the cinema screen for TikTok. Just make sure it isn't disturbing to the other patrons. Make sure it isn't going to affect anybody else's enjoyment. If you must do it, do it discreetly. And if you can't do it discreetly, don't do it at all, because you are ruining it for the rest of us and you are being a dick. So, if any gentle minions are listening to me, and I very much doubt that my demographic overlaps with gentle minions, but if there are gentle minions listening to this, don't be a dick. So with that off my chest, the actual movie, Minions Rise of Gru is the latest in the Despicable Me franchise, which has rapidly turned into the Minions franchise. I mean, it, it's remarkable how we've gone from these are little creatures which follow the most evil person in the world to being cute little yellow babbling things which everybody's obsessed with. But... In this story, we are in the 1970s, I think it's specifically 1978, where a 10-year-old Gru, who in the last Minions movie in 2015 has already got a load of Minions following him, he is attempting to be the latest member of the supervillain fraternity, the Vicious Six, because the Vicious Six have kicked out their founder member and now need a new one. So this 12-year-old boy grew with his minions applies and when he shows up they realize hang on a minute you're a kid of course we're not going to accept you so rejected grew goes away but 
he sees an opportunity to steal a particular amulet. An amulet which the Vicious Six have tried very, very hard to get their hands on, which will activate on the Chinese New Year a couple of weeks hence. And Gru, almost by accident, manages to get his hands on this amulet, but of course one of the minions then loses it. So both Gru and the Vicious Six and the minions who are chastened by their big boss trying to get rid of them are all looking after this amulet which will activate on the Chinese New Year. And along the way we interact with the leader of the Vicious Six played by Taraji B. Henson playing the character Bell Bottom which I thought was quite interesting. The former leader of the Vicious Six who got kicked out as he was getting this amulet, Alan Arkin. And when they get closer to the Chinese New Year, the minions get in the control of a Kung Fu master played by Michelle Yeoh. Michelle Yeoh clearly having a lot of fun in this movie. So yeah, there's a decent group of people in the voice cast. And of course, lots and lots and lots of minions. So, will this amulet be activated? And will Gru achieve his dreams in joining the Vicious Six, even though he's like 12 years old? One thing that came up in the conversation I had later in the evening with the member of staff at the Odeon Cinema was, this is product. That's exactly what it is. It is a film which shows us minions because we clearly love the minions. And hey, I'm not above it. I love the minions too. They're cute. They're funny. They're charming. But I'm not so obsessed with the minions that I want to ruin everybody's day by being a gentle minion on TikTok. But yeah, I mean, it's a film which is just trying to do a lot of different things and mildly counterintuitive things. There are so many references to the 70s. Like, there's a Mission Impossible-style thing, you know, this tape will self-destruct, except it's not a tape, it's an eight-track. Bellbottom, the lead villain, has a massive afro, like twice the width of her body. There's film references which come from the 70s and early 80s. Like, there's a couple of references to Airplane. There's a deliberate and overt sequence which is directly inspired by Easy Rider. The opening credits of this film are very similar to the 60s and 70s Bond credits, only the song is in Mandarin which is relevant because the whole MacGuffin is very tied into Chinese mythology which would seem to be a little bit like cultural appropriation, but I'm hesitant to accuse this film of cultural appropriation since Michelle Yeoh is actually in it, and Michelle Yeoh is awesome. But lots of white people talking about Chinese mysticism, I found that a little bit uncomfortable. There's another one of the major villains who seems to be directly inspired by the 70s film Rollerball which I'm not sure anybody remembers nowadays. And even when they made a remake of it not that long ago, that completely bombed and disappeared. So, 
yeah, there's so many references in this which a child audience just isn't going to get. And a significant portion of stuff, I think, in this film that even the parents aren't going to necessarily get. So who are these references for? Yes, the minions are cute. Yes, the minions are funny. The babbling nonsense dialogue from original Despicable Me director Pierre Coffin. Very, very funny. It has its cute moments, but as an entire film, it's just going along rails. I mean, yes, it's kind of interesting that we're overtly dealing with Chinese mythology here, but even so, it's product. That's what it is. That's all it's ever going to be. And... I probably can't recommend going to the cinema to see it, particularly since even now there's likely to be idiot gentle minions doing shit on TikTok in your cinema screen. So avoid that if you can, and the chances of that happening are not worth actually going to the cinema to see this. So yeah, it's product. It's perfectly fine, but that's all it is. So for me... Minions, The Rise of Gru, is a pretty dispassionate, pretty standard meh. But my cinema experience was a nay, given these TikTok twats. But anyway, that's an entirely separate issue. The film itself is just disposable. It's product, and that's all it is. So, after I saw Minions, Rise of Gru... As I said, exactly the same season, exactly the same screen. I was scheduled to watch the Swedish film Tigers with an in-person Q&A with the director, Ronnie Sandahl. Now, this was a screening that baffled me, really, because if there was going to be an in-person Q&A, why wasn't it at the Little Theatre rather than the Multiplex Odeon? I mean, I knew that there was something going on with the Q&A in Bristol later in the week, so maybe they just fit this in at the last minute. I mean, this was not very well advertised. It was very last minute. It was pure chance they actually managed to see it in time to attend it. So when I showed up to this screening of Tigers, I was one of two people who'd actually bought a ticket to it, which was disheartening. I mean, like I said, the fact that it was on at the multiplex it wasn't particularly well advertised it seemed to be a little bit last minute it was very very poorly attended to the extent that ronnie sandal and the producer who were scheduled to give the q a showed up at the beginning saw there was basically nobody there and then went home and cancelled the q a so i spent a few minutes talking to you know the other person who showed up in this screening you know had a conversation you know about the film about our film experiences that kind of thing i said i did a podcast and gave him the website so hello maybe you're listening now random person i met in the screening of tigers but yeah we had a, a chat about the film and about what we thought about it and then this member of staff came in and said uh, yeah and confirmed to us which was pretty obvious already that yeah they just went home they didn't bother staying 
And we had a chat with her, and that's when this whole conversation about the gentle minions debacle went on. So, yeah, we had, I had a nice conversation with her as well. I mean, I've interacted with her a couple of times as well now. So, yeah, we, we had a nice chat between the three of us and went home. And it, it, it really frustrates me. It's really disappointing that I had a bad experience in Minions because of these idiots doing their TikTok shit. And then I had a somewhat bad experience in Tigers, given the fact that this genuinely good film only had two people attending to the extent that the director just went home without doing the Q&A. It was a disheartening day on a couple of different levels, but the film itself, Tigers, I do think is worth checking out. As I said, it is directed by Ronnie Sandal, who has one feature-length film in his background, which doesn't appear to have got UK distribution, but this film did get submitted by Sweden to this year's Oscars. Didn't end up on the long list. Didn't seem very likely to end up on the long list. But it is a film with some prestige behind it. And it is based on a memoir by a young man named Martin Bengtsson called In the Shadow of the San Siro. At the age of 16, Martin Bengtsson was seen as one of the hottest footballing prospects in Europe. He played for his hometown small team in Sweden, Urbro, and at the age of 16 he was bought by Inter Milan. So this 16-year-old Swedish kid, already touted as one of the hottest prospects in European football, is signed for Inter Milan. And it's basically one of those stories, be careful what you wish for. Because when he gets there, because he's got all this high profile, because you know somebody's actually paid for him, because he's actually got a signing bonus, all the Italian players have been there since they were you know, 10 or 11 years old. They all resent him. They ostracize him. The only person who spends any time with him at all is an American goalkeeper played by Alfred Enoch. And Martin Bankson is played by the young actor Eric Enger. So Eric Enger is isolated, lonely, confused, distracted by the intensity of this hothouse environment in which he is living. The only outlet for his tensions and frustrations is a Swedish girl he meets on the streets of Milan, played by Frida Gustafsson who has moved to Milan as a model, but she has her own issues, her own demons. She has a clear drug problem, which is not being addressed. She's constantly sniffing out of a little vial in her pocket. But it's the only outlet that Eric Enger has, so this relationship goes on apace. But the more isolated Eric Enger feels, the more... Pressure is put upon him by the press and by the chairman of Inter Milan, played by Maurizio Lombardi, the more his dreams start crumbling in front of him, to the extent that young Martin Bankson has some severe mental health issues. He is suffering mightily from depression, and 
Martin Bankson, as played by Eric Anger, only lasts one season in Inter Milan before basically breaking and going home. I mean, in real life, Martin Bankson only ever played one professional game for his hometown club in Sweden, Urebro, and then retired at the age of 19. In the film, Eric Anger plays 10 minutes for the first team, and that's a scene I'll be getting back to in a minute because I think that's very telling. But yeah, this is basically about the lack of mental health care and control for young players being put into these very high-pressure environments and how sometimes it can be too much. And as that, I think Tigers does this very, very well. I mean, there is a reason why this film is called Tigers, and honestly, I don't think it's a very good title. I don't think it's a very helpful title, but regardless, it's called Tigers, and it it follows this young 16-year-old boy who is absolutely obsessed with success. There's montages earlier when he's back at home in Sweden of him obsessively training, obsessively seeking perfection, watching what he eats, being very careful about his attitude. But also he's 16 years old. I mean, he ostentatiously goes to his school locker, takes all his school books and dumps them in a bin because I'm going to Milan, damn it. I'm going to be a famous footballer. I'm going to buy myself a car, even though I'm too young to actually drive it. And yes, that's ostentatious, but I think it's notable that he doesn't buy himself a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or anything. He buys himself a nice car, but it's only an Alfa Romeo. So yeah, I think even as a 16-year-old, you see he doesn't quite fully buy into this, or at least not yet. But there's all these things. I mean, all the people around him resent him. There's a language barrier, and they ostentatiously exclude him because he doesn't yet speak very good Italian. I mean, Another thing he's obsessive about is he's obsessively learning Italian, but he's not there yet. So when people exclude him, it is very easy to exclude him, and people want to exclude him because he's this hotshot. He's going to take our space. If he comes in, some of us are going to get released. So we resent him. We want to get rid of him. And there's lots of psychological torture going in. And he's 16 years old. He doesn't have a massively strong support structure. I mean, his father abandoned him years ago. His mother is working so hard to you know, keep food on the table that she's absent for that reason. But she does love him. She does care about him. But she's got other things on. So the isolation that this young boy feels in the middle of Milan is palpable. And this brings me to the central scene of this film, or what I perceive as the central scene, where Eric Anger plays 10 minutes for the first team of Inter Milan, which, as I said, did not happen to the real-life Martin Bankson, but in the film, Eric Anger plays 10 minutes for the first team of Inter Milan. And this scene is played so, so well. The majority of this scene is Eric Anger sitting on the bench and wondering if he's going to be playing for the first team of Inter Milan in the San Siro. 
and you can see he is so wound up he is so tense he's so hyper aware of the situation he's so intense he doesn't even notice when Inter Milan score I mean everybody else around him on the bench just sort of leaps up and starts cheering and he sort of well what's happening and then goes oh we've scored I better cheer as well but he's in his own head he's entirely in his own head this is what he has wanted this is what he has been dreaming of since he was three years old and he's finally here but he is completely in his own head not in the moment and then when he eventually does get on to the pitch for these final 10 minutes of the game, in what seems to be a match that's already been won, you know, which often happens, a young player gets blooded in the first team by just shoving him on for the last 10 minutes of a match we've already won. This happens over and over and over again. But seeing it actually happen to this kid, Eric Enger, who by this time I think is 17, but you know, he's still a young teenager, and you see him, we follow him around the pitch as he's on for the, you know, playing in the San Siro for the first team of Inter Milan. And he's not enjoying it. He is completely isolated, completely alone, even though he is on the pitch with teammates as part of a unit, yet he is completely isolated. And his expression, his body language, even when he gets to kick the ball, even when he's passing, he's a central midfielder, so you know, the play goes through him. So. He does kick the ball a couple of times. But at every point, he is entirely in his own head. He is entirely isolated whilst in a crowd. And you start to realise that the character is starting to realise, do I actually want this? Now I've got here, now I have achieved my goals, do I actually want this? Can I cope with the pressure, with the expectation, with the intensity? I mean, soon after this, there's a big spread in Gazetta della Sport saying, you know, these are the best teenage players in Europe and the highest ranked player in an Italian club is this kid, Martin Bankson. So even the international press is saying, this kid is special. But does he want to be special? It is the fact that he's made it enough and with his interactions with his model girlfriend Frida Gustafsson we start seeing some of her background and her story I mean these are aspirational jobs you know being a professional footballer being a model these are two Swedish kids in Milan in Italy with jobs with dream jobs jobs that anybody would kill to have and yet they're not especially happy now, one of the ways that Eric Enger's gradual mental breakdown manifests itself is he pushes Frieda Gustafsson away from him, saying, no, I need to concentrate on my career. I can't have a girlfriend right now. And by this point, we can already see that he's not even sure he wants to be a professional footballer anymore. And yet, for the sake of being a professional footballer, he's pushing his girlfriend away from him. A girlfriend who is very, very into him, albeit she does seem to have something of a drug problem, but his life is completely messed up. His attitude, his mental health, his safety is very hard to see and to the point where he essentially breaks down and it has to confront the fact that it's too hard. I maybe don't want this. Uh, and I think the fragility, the mental struggle 
the the original memoir by Martin Bankson is talking about and what is portrayed through the performance, the excellent performance of Eric Anger in this film and the direction of Ronnie Sandal. I think Tigers is a film which really, really works. Uh, I did really like it. And I hope by the time this podcast comes out, it is still available in cinemas for you because I do think it's worth checking out. So for me, the Swedish film Tigers is a pretty high meh. So that was my cinema trips for the week, or at least cinema trips for films that are out this week. But another film that is out at the cinemas this week, but I have already seen through extra legal means earlier in the year, is the Australian film Nightram. I did pirate it earlier in the year for Oscar deliberations, and I personally gave Judy Davis a supporting actress nomination in my Oscar preview show and an honourable mention for Caleb Landry-Jones in my Oscar preview for Best Actor. I do think this is a hard-hitting but very worthwhile film. And it is out at the cinema this week, and I have bought myself a ticket. My personal conscience is clear. So I did pay, albeit a couple of months later than when I actually watched it, but I have paid for this film, and it is now time to release the review. So here is my review of the film Night Tram. Archive start. It is early March, and I have just watched through Extra Legal Means the Australian film Night Tram, because it was listed on the Gold Derby list of Oscar potential. I'm assuming that at some point it will come out in the UK in 2022, although there doesn't appear to be a confirmed release date yet. But this was something of a prestige picture. It premiered at the 2021 Cannes Film Festival, where Caleb Landry-Jones actually won Best Actor for this film. And it also achieved a cataclysmic Grand Slam at the Actor Awards in Australia, the Australian Oscars. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Original Screenplay, Best Editing, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress. It won almost all the awards for films at the AACTA Awards in Australia. So with that little prestige behind it, it did end up on the Gold Derby lists, and maybe also because it is directed by Justin Kurzel, who is a director with something of a name. He directed the Michael Fassbender version of Macbeth. He directed the True History of the Kelly Gang, which I wasn't actually a big fan of. And he also directed Michael Fassbender in Assassin's Creed, which is a weird left turn. But perhaps most relevantly, his breakout film back in 2011 was a film called Snowtown, which in America, I believe, is known as The Snowtown Murders. And it recounts a true crime story of one of the worst serial killers in Australian history, or it was actually a group of serial killers, with a charismatic leader who got minions to basically kill people 
in the South Australian town of Snowtown. And he's done something similar here with Justin Kurzel making a film which is a fictionalised and somewhat simplified retelling of the events leading up to one of the worst mass shootings in Australian history at the Port Arthur historical site in Tasmania. The Port Arthur massacre killed 35 people and injured 24 others and almost instantly changed Australian gun laws. It actually happened a couple of months after Dunblane and the perpetrator, it's widely accepted, was directly influenced by Dunblane. And that indeed happens in the film. And Dunblane changed British gun laws for the better. But, you know, Second Amendment whack jobs in America means that sensible gun control is never going to happen there. But anyway, this is the fictionalised story of the perpetrator of this massacre who goes by the unkind nickname Night Tram because he's a little backward and his name's Martin. Kids at school teased him by nicknaming him Night Tram. He's a maladjusted young man with mental challenges, with social issues, and a parent played by Judy Davis and Anthony LaPaglia who have long ago given up on him. But when he forms a connection with a kooky heiress, played by Essie Davis, who is a fantastic actress in things like The Babadook and also happens to be Justin Kurzel's wife, Essie Davis is an heiress and takes young Nightram under her wing and when she dies, he inherits all her money, and that is the first domino of many dominoes that falls, which leads to this mass shooting. And I can definitely see why Caleb Landry-Jones got a Best Actor Award at the Cannes Film Festival, and indeed an Actor Award in the Australian Oscars. He is excellent in this film, as this maladjusted awkward young man who's obsessed with fireworks and this eventually develops into an obsession with guns. There's actually archive footage at the beginning of this which looks like it is archive footage of the actual perpetrator when he was a child and appeared on television talking about being obsessed with fireworks. And yeah, I mean this weirdo loner has all these things happen to him. He doesn't have the best family life. His mother, Judy Davis, is condescending and dismissive and has just given up, basically. His father, Anthony LaPallier, is a little bit too indulgent but has his own issues with depression, so he doesn't have a particularly stable home life. And as sort of like a, a really pathetic attempt to fit in and do something with his life, he starts a lawn care business with a lawnmower that really doesn't work. And one of the doors he knocks on happens to be Essie Davis's house. And 
Yeah, she's an heiress. She is, comes from a family which runs the lottery or one of the lotteries in Australia. I mean, I don't know how it works, but she's absolutely loaded. But it's basically a Grey Gardens situation. Yes, she's loaded, but she is the epitome of a cat lady. She is awkward and doesn't have any friends. Is living in this crumbling house. I mean, it's a large house, but it's crumbling and it's got masses of dogs, masses of cats in it. I think at one point she says she has 14 dogs and God knows how many cats. I mean, she's a reclusive weirdo. and. There's a kinship there between Essie Davis, this older woman, and this young, socially awkward, maladjusted man. And when she dies, and Nitrum inherits all the money, that just makes everything worse. Because now he can actually buy guns. And he does. And it's stupidly easy for him to buy guns. Which, of course, then changed after this massacre. But the way this film unfolds, I mean, you can see the tragedy unfolding before your eyes. I mean, that is, you know, the goal of this film is, you know, all the steps along the way and to a certain degree how inevitable it was. I mean, in the situation he was in, there was no support structure, there was no concern particularly i mean yes everybody knew he was a weirdo you know setting off fireworks outside a school for the entertainment of all the kids his friends who are like nine ten years old and watching his firework display in the middle of the day i mean everybody knows he's a weirdo but how much of a weirdo is difficult to establish and judy davis who by the way is also excellent in this film alongside caleb landry jones but Judy Davis, as the mother, she is detached to the point of sociopathy. I mean, there's one particular scene where Judy Davis just stands back and lets her son do something, which is absolutely not healthy for him, for her husband, or for her. Yet she stands back and lets it happen. And to me, the impression that is given in this film is she's just completely given up. She's had to live all her life with this really damaged person who you know has mental challenges. I mean, he is you know played as backward, but also has all these social problems. I mean, he just doesn't realise that it's probably not a good idea to give nine ten year old school children lit fireworks he's just that kind of kid or young man and yeah it's the crushing inevitability of this whole thing because we as an audience know or should know where this is going and eventually we get there i mean and it's a chilling moment where he sits down in awe and looks at news reports of the dunblane massacre in scotland and this kind of inspires him. And we know where this is going. Now, I do think that Justin Kurzel did a reasonably sensitive job of portraying the actions that were taken by this young man. We don't see anything graphically. I think what Justin Kurzel 
and his screenwriter Sean Grant, who, by the way, also wrote Snowtown. But what Justin Kurzel and Sean Grant are trying to do is show the build-up, show the environment which existed, which allowed this to happen. They are not so concerned with the, the lurid or the graphic or the horrifying. They eschew that, they gloss over that, and I think that was probably the right thing to do. I mean, we can see what is going to happen, and obviously there's carols that come up at the end of the film, but I think Justin Kurzel did it reasonably sensitively. Yet, despite that, this film Night Tram has been very, very controversial on Tasmania, where this massacre took place. There were very, very few public screenings of Night Tram on Tasmania, most of which weren't actually advertised as happening. Politicians got involved, and obviously there's you know, gun activist groups which have grown up from you know the parents of people who were killed, and they've complained about it as well. I mean, they have protested mightily about this, and you know this was not shot on Tasmania; it was shot on Geelong in Victoria. And yeah, in Tasmania, this remains very, very controversial. And I totally understand that. I totally get that. I mean, it, it, it is picking at a scab which doesn't necessarily need to be picked at. It is, or at least I think the argument is made that for people who haven't seen the film, that it is glorifying what happened. It is sympathising to some degree with Nitram. But I don't think that's what we have here. What we have here is a brilliant performance by Caleb Landry-Jones of an incredibly disturbed and mentally challenged young man who decided to shoot people and not enough was done. There were not enough structures in place to prevent it, particularly the absurdly easy way he was able to get highly powered semi-automatic weapons. I mean, it was far, far too easy for that to happen. And yeah, I think that's the point that Justin Kurzel is trying to make. I mean, one of the things that comes up in the Chiron at the end of the film is that gun ownership in Australia now is higher than it was in 1996 when this happened. So I mean, maybe the gun control laws haven't been as effective as we would like them to be. But yeah, I mean, this is a film with a point. It's a brilliant acting showcase, particularly from Caleb Landry-Jones and Judy Davis alongside Anthony LaPaglia and Essie Davis, who also won Actor Awards, as in AACTA Awards. And yeah, I think this is a harrowing film, but I think it is a good film. I would completely understand if you decided for yourself that this just was not the type of film that you would be comfortable watching. That's fine. But if you do feel like you can cope with the uncomfortable truths which are covered in this film, then I do think Night Tram is a film to watch. Like I said, I assume at some point in 2022 this will be released, and when it is, I basically recommend it for those who can stomach it. So for me, Night Tram is a pretty high, though disturbing, meh. Archive finish. A weird thing that happened to me this week, after I'd watched and indeed after I'd paid for a ticket to Night Tram, 
is I got an email via the Picture House chain, which is the chain which owns the little theatre here in Bath. I'm on the mailing list, as you would expect. And this email from the Picture House Cinema was nothing more than a statement by director Justin Kurzel. Clearly this film, Night Tram, is still controversial enough that he wanted to reassure people that you know, I'm not being exploitative. Yes, this is about a massacre, but me and my wife, Essie Davis, now live in Tasmania. We're raising our daughters in Tasmania. We love Tasmania. But this is a story which I felt needed to be told. It's a story about the signs that were missed. It's a story about what happens to somebody like this when they decide to do a mass shooting like this. What is the state of mind? What are the steps along the way? I felt this was a story that needed to be told, and I'm not trying to be exploitative. And, personally speaking, I don't think that Night Tram is exploitative. Yes, the final scene of this film is Night Tram picking up a, an assault rifle, cocking it, and we hear bullets and screaming, but we don't see anything. And that's how the film leaves us. And we have Kurons coming up at the end, you know, the people who were killed, the people who were injured. And I think that is the most sensitive way of doing it. We, we are not glorifying this man. We are simply trying to make a statement about this man and trying to understand, not necessarily the individual, but understand the circumstances which led to this tragic event. And that, I do think, is valuable. I mean, in between when I recorded that review of Night Tram a couple of months ago and when I'm recording about it now, we've had the Uvalde massacre in the United States. This kind of shit just keeps on happening. And the more we talk about it, the more we acknowledge it, the more, hopefully, things will be done about it, apart from in America where the Second Amendment whack jobs are still going to maintain that this is just the cost of doing business. Every now and again we're going to have mass shootings because we need our guns, goddammit. We need to form our militias. Fuck's sake. But anyway, I do think that Night Tram is hard going, but I don't find it exploitative and the acting performances, particularly from Caleb Landry Jones and Judy Davis, are excellent. So for me... If you can stomach it, I do recommend Night Tram, and for me, it is a very, very high meh. Home Movies One of the initial original movies available through Paramount Plus, now it launched here in the UK, was the movie Three Months. And since I have access to Paramount Plus through my Skybox and can therefore watch it on my big TV downstairs, I can watch it whilst still keeping one eye on Purdy the Kitten. So that's what I did. Three Months is the feature-length debut of writer-director Jared Frieda and stars YouTuber and singer Troy Sivan as a young man in Hollywood, Florida in 2011. He is very much an outsider in this somewhat conservative South Florida town. He's openly gay. He 
rides around town on a tandem bike alone. Heavy with metaphor, especially when you hear why he rides a tandem around. And his only friend is the out lesbian in his high school, played by Brianne Chu. They are the kinds of people who don't go to their high school graduations. They sit on a hill with a telephoto lens above the graduation, watching it with their skateboard and tandem, as the valedictorian thanks Jesus and Jeb Bush for their graduation. This would be all fine being outsiders and quirking all that, apart from the fact that Troy Sivan has recently been exposed to HIV. He got dumped by his boyfriend, so went to a nearby biker bar, had a one-night stand, only to receive a text soon afterwards saying, Sorry, I've tested positive for HIV. I really didn't know. We can laugh about this one day. And Troy Sivan is definitely not going to laugh about this. He is deathly afraid of being HIV positive, as you would be. But the testing process to see whether he has actually been infected takes three months. So in the course of these three months, Troy Sivan goes to a support group for local queer teens and meets another boy he forms an instant attraction to, Vivek Kalra from Blinded by the Light. This very handsome Hindu boy is very closeted from his parents, who don't realise he's gay, let alone the fact that he too has been exposed to HIV and is also waiting the three months to see whether he is positive. So in this holding pattern as both of these boys are waiting to see if they are HIV positive, a bond forms, a relationship forms between these two people. But will it be okay in the end? Will the HIV threat hanging over them cause issues in their lives? When I saw the premise of this film, I was interested in it. But then I saw that the lead was a YouTuber, and I was hesitant. When YouTubers try to become actual actors, it usually doesn't work. But I should have done a little more research, because primarily Troy Sivan became famous for being a singer and only then got massively popular on YouTube. He's also occasionally acted in the past, including a very crucial and very good supporting role in the gay conversion film Boy Erased, which, incidentally, Troy Sivan got a Golden Globe nomination for, for the rather good original song, which was attached to the film Boy Erased. So, he does have some chops. And, boy does he prove it in three months. I think Troy Sivan is an excellent acting performance in this film. 
the snarky, cynical outsider whose cynicism has been ramped up to the maximum because he's got this potential life-altering, life-shortening threat hanging over him, which he just does not know about yet. Three months is a hell of a long time to wait, particularly since they've just graduated, and this is the three months over summer. So, essentially, this is a The Summer It All Changed movie quite literally in this case. I mean, is he HIV positive or not? Can he make this relationship work with Vivek Kalra or not? There's that typical dynamic which is so common in this film. I mean, his best friend, Brianne Chu, and his potential new boyfriend, Vivek Kalra, who gets to spend most time with Troy Sivan, who resents and who is jealous of that. I mean, Brianne Chu has her own stuff to deal with and Troy Sivan really isn't helping her his best friend go through these traumas that she's going through because he's so wrapped up in his own stuff not only this potential HIV diagnosis but also this potential new relationship with Vivek Kalra which is made all the more complicated because Vivek Kalra is very very in the closet to his family One thing that I didn't expect to come up in this film is the way that religion is approached. Because Troy Sivan is an orthodox Jew and Vivek Kaura is a Hindu. And both in their own ways, they have been affected by their religious backgrounds. Like I said, Vivek Kaura is deeply deeply in the closet to his strict Hindu parents. And as soon as Troy Sivan came out, his Orthodox Jewish mother, played by the excellent Amy Landecker, who has a great scene in this, kicked him out of the house. And Troy Sivan, for the last few years, has been living with his grandmother, played by Ellen Burstyn. And Ellen Burstyn has a live-in partner, who she determinedly will not marry, but they've been living together for years, played by Lewis Gossett Jr. Ellen Burstyn and Lewis Gossett Jr. is not a pairing you would naturally put together, I don't think, but on screen together, they are great in this film. Lots of warmth and humour, but also a little bit of edge, a little bit of antagonism. But Ellen Burstyn and Lewis Gossett Jr. are excellent. Amy Landecker is excellent, even though she's only in one scene. And both Troy Sivan and Brianne Chu work at the local convenience store. And the manager of that convenience store is Judy Greer. So excellent supporting characters there. I mean, Judy Greer is excellent casting, perfect casting for the mildly flustered manager of this convenience store who is struggling a little bit financially. but. There's an extra layer to that character, which I won't go into because it's a little bit of a spoiler. But yeah, the angles that Judy Greer takes in this are excellent. So yeah, perfect casting all around for the supporting actors. And Troy Sivan is excellent as well. The self-involved, I mean, the naturally self-involved way he goes about this. I mean, when you've got this devastating potential news on the horizon of course you are going to be a little bit insular you're going to push people away even if it is you know your absolute best friend your only friend Brianne Chu 
but also the chemistry and the connection that Troy Sivan finds with Vivek Kaura. It is instant attraction, instant chemistry. I mean, Troy Sivan doesn't particularly even want to go to this support group, but he has one specific question he needs to ask, and the only time he can ask it is, you know, his doctor is running the support group. So against his better judgment, he goes to this support group and instantly starts talking to Vivek Kaurag when they realise they're in the same situation of waiting these few months for their HIV test. And they go from being a little bit bitchy to each other, a little bit antagonistic to each other, to you know, that same night going to a karaoke bar together and hitting it off enormously well. I mean, these two boys are definitely, definitely into each other instantly. And it's cute and it works. I mean, yes, it's a little bit more accelerated than I personally like in my romantic comedies or romantic films, but you kind of buy it. Instantly, they are very, very into each other, but there are complications in the way. I mean, one or both of them might be HIV positive, and Vivek Kaura is still very, very in the closet. And the fact that this is set in 2011, I think, is also relevant. Uh, as far as I know, this is somewhat based on Jared Frieda's own experiences. I mean, I'm, I do not know, and it has not been made public, and quite honestly, I'm not sure it exactly matters whether Jared Frieda is HIV positive, but I think this is basically inspired by his own life. And the fact it is set in 2011 allows us to examine the cultural footprint of being HIV positive at that time. Because Troy Sivan repeatedly watches real-world San Francisco. Now, one of the co-producers of this film is MTV Movies. So, I mean, a little bit of this is MTV patting its own back and allowing this footage to be used, because in 1994, Real World San Francisco had an openly HIV-positive cast member. I mean, I'm sure everybody knows what the premise of the real world is. You know, seven strangers move in together in a house and see what happens. And in 1994 in San Francisco... Pedro Zamora was a cast member who was openly HIV positive, which caused a lot of friction and exposed the world who were watching this to what it is like to live with HIV and also what it is like to live as a gay man as well, because during the course of Real World San Francisco, there was a commitment ceremony between Pedro Zamora and his boyfriend the first time that had ever happened on US TV. So Pedro Zamora was a trailblazer in HIV visibility and HIV education. Unfortunately, he didn't make it. He died of AIDS the day after the last episode of Real World San Francisco aired on US television. But he made a difference. And... You know, having something to latch on to, having somebody living with HIV and living proudly with HIV, that is something to hold on to. And I think showing, even in 2011, there was you know, tiny little bits of 
visibility and connection, I think that does mean something that does matter, even if it is a little bit MTV patting itself on the back for having an HIV positive cast member in 1994 anyway. But it does matter, and it, and it does build into what Troy Sivan is going through. And quite honestly, I'm astonished how impressed I was with Troy Sivan. I mean, if I'd remembered his role in Boy Erased, I mean, it was a small role in Boy Erased, but it was very, very good. So, yeah. Three months, I think, is excellent. And it's very, very easy to overlook. I mean, the first time I looked through Paramount Plus, I did overlook it. But if you do have Sky Cinema, you have access to Paramount Plus. I believe even if you don't have a subscription to Sky Cinema, you can have a subscription to Paramount Plus in the UK anyway. But either way, if you do have access to Paramount Plus, I do think it is definitely worth checking out the very small, very well-crafted indie movie about HIV and queerness, Three Months, because I think it's excellent. And for me, Three Months, available on Paramount Plus, is a yay. Netflix and chill. So on Saturday, when I went over to Bristol in order to watch Pompo the Cinephile and the Finnish festival film Girl Picture, what I chose to watch on the bus ride over on my tablet on Netflix was the Norwegian film Blasted. Directed by Martin Sofidal, who has several shorts and one feature in his background, none of which got very much attention. This stars Axel Boyum as a very uptight financial whiz who is just about to get married, but he can't possibly deal with that because he needs to prepare for a very, very important presentation for a very rich client played by Andre Surum. But because he's very uptight and nervous, this presentation doesn't go well, and Andre Surum tells him, look, you're just not exciting, I don't feel anything, there's no passion here. And Axel Boyum, out of desperation, says, well, it just so happens that my colleague, Matthias Lupicini, is organising a bachelor party for me in this valley up in the far north of Norway, which has all these mysterious UFO sightings around it. So, hey, do you want to come up and have some fun, you know, go out into the wilderness and let's be men together? And the rather obnoxious and misogynistic Andre Sorum says, okay, I'll tag along to your bachelor party. You better impress me. So Axel Boehm, his work friend, Matthias Lupicini, and this obnoxious rich guy, Andre Surum, as well as the Deliveroo guy who brings their lunches every day, Eric Halfert. And it's really, really unclear whether he's actually their friend or if he's just invited himself along. But nevertheless, this rather odd, rather detached guy comes along as well. But also making the journey and crushing this bachelor party is Axel Boehm's childhood friend, Frederick Skogsrud. Because Axel Boehm's fiancée discovered that when Axel Boehm was 15 years old, 
He was a European laser tag champion, alongside Frederick Skogsrud. And thinking, well, of course you want your childhood friend to go along to your bachelor party, the fiancé has invited this guy along, which gets in the way of you know having a bachelor party, gets in the way of potentially schmoozing this rich client, and basically making it all about himself and his awesome new laser tag guns. So they all go off to this remote UFO-infested valley in the north of Norway, only for a full-scale UFO invasion to start taking place, centred around the observatory, which is on one of the mountains up this valley in Norway. And wouldn't you know it, laser tag guns, the polarised light from laser tag guns, is exactly the thing which you need to rid body-snatched people of these alien interlopers. So we need to get the team back together and these bickering laser tag people who haven't actually talked to each other for about a decade suddenly have to fight off a full-scale alien invasion. So can they work together? Can they survive? Can Axel Boom actually impress this rich guy and get his money? And can these aliens be got rid of? It's a pretty silly premise, the idea that laser tag guns can save the world from an alien invasion. But if you accept that pretty silly basic premise, I think Blasted is actually quite a bit of fun. It does have some 80s references in it. There's clear moments that evoke Ghostbusters. There's clear moments that evoke Back to the Future. There's a particular MacGuffin piece of tech which is referred to as a flux capacitor, although whether that's its actual name or just the nickname is unclear, but it's clear what the writers and the filmmakers are trying to say to an audience. There's also in this valley, you know, a convenience store who's making money off all these UFO tourists. You know, it's got a grey above the door, it's got UFO tours going up and down this valley where mysterious lights have been appearing for generations. And he's got a security system which will turn this into a bunker. And it just so happens that this guy's daughter who runs this convenience store is the local police chief who happens to be heavily pregnant, like on the verge of dropping pregnant. So it's kind of like Burt Gummer from Tremors has a daughter who is Marge from Fargo which is a very strange combination. But there's all these people you know, going around and trying to fix this alien invasion, trying to persuade people that there even is an alien invasion. I mean, very much evoking body snatchers. In certain places, there are visual cues which are directly taken from body snatchers, at least the, the 1970s body snatchers, which is the one I'm most familiar with. But there's lots of other stuff going on as well. Like the journey of the main character Axel Boehm who's a nice sweet nerdy guy who's marrying an equally nice sweet nerdy girl they seem good together I mean there's not a great deal of interaction between them because most of it's this bachelor party but they look good together but trying to make that work and trying to be a success 
in this marriage, whilst also trying to be a success in business and trying to impress this very obnoxious rich guy who's just been invited along. You know, I want to be entertained. I want to go wild and crazy in the woods for a while. I mean, he shows up in a sports car and his number plate is a picture, a silhouette of a cockerel. And then the rest of the number plate says rocket. And he's always making very crass, very crude comments, including a lot of stuff about the butt. He makes more than one reference to fisting. And I'm sure that had to be deliberate on the screenwriter's part. This is an obnoxious, crass, crude guy. Yet, he's rich, so he needs to be impressed. And of course, when the aliens capture everybody, he tries to weasel out of it and sells, tries to sell everybody else out. You know, I'm rich, I deserve to survive. You lot can fend for yourselves, basically. And having this dynamic going on at the same time, you've got this rekindled relationship between Axel Boyum and his former laser tag partner, Frederick Skogsrud. Because whilst Axel Boyum tried to make something of himself, tried to you know, get a proper job, a proper marriage, proper relationship, tried to be successful, Frederick Skogsrud has been in a complete state of arrested development. He's still hanging around the laser tag arena, whereas he's sort of like 20-something and all his opponents are like 12. He's just never left. That's all he wants to do. And can't quite understand why Axel Boyan would want, you know, a career or a marriage or money. And, you know, these completely different philosophies of life clash against each other as well. I mean, when they were 15, they were absolute best friends, but now they're very, very different people. So how do you combine that, particularly when you've got the external pressures of, you know, an alien invasion? I mean, I've talked a lot about all the 80s movie references which I've found in here, and there are a lot of them, and I think there are deliberately a lot of them. It's evoking a very specific type of broad, generally family-friendly sci-fi entertainment. But the one film that really, really came to mind as I was watching this film blasted is Edgar Wright's film, The World's End. Only it's being told from Nick Frost's point of view, not Simon Peck's. I mean, the quote-unquote hero of The World's End is Simon Peck. You know, this guy who is stuck in this arrested development state is determined to gather all his high school friends together to finally finish this pub crawl they never finished in high school. And he's so desperate to cling on to the past that he's dragging everybody down with him. And there's an alien invasion. Whereas here, Frederick Skogsrud is exactly the same. He is in perpetual arrested development. He is determined to reconnect with Axel Boyan. But the only way he can reconnect with his old friend is through laser tag which when you're in your late 20s, or possibly even early 30s, it's not quite so fun anymore, is it? So dealing with that arrested development and the issues that arise because of that, very, very similar here in Blasted to The World's End, only the perspective is shifted. And I think having 
that Arrested Development character as a side character, as a supporting character to the main story, gives it a different angle and makes it feel all the more interesting. This idea that, yes, I am good at laser tag, but I do need to actually make money and impress this rich guy, even though he's a complete misogynistic prick, but I need to impress him. So I can't really go along with you and play laser tag. So these conflicts, I think, are are reasonably well done. So all around, I think this is a solid, entertaining, pretty harmless sci-fi themed comedy thriller. There's nothing particularly original here. I mean, there's one or two mildly unexpected and unusual angles it takes. But really, this is pretty standard stuff. I mean, playing laser tag to avoid a UFO invasion, you get what you pay for. And it's entertaining enough. It's perfectly respectable, perfectly solid, not outstanding in any way, but enjoyable enough. So for me, Blasted, the Norwegian film on Netflix, is a rock-solid, entertaining meh. Coming attractions. As I mentioned at the beginning of this show, my schedule for the foreseeable future is going to be thrown somewhat up in the air by my kitten-sitting duties. But my plan is to make two cinema trips this particular week. Firstly, the major release is the latest release into the MCU, Thor, Love and Thunder. Once again, directed by Taika Waititi, although the script has been written by Jennifer Caton Robinson, a filmmaker I really, really respect. But in this one, we have Chris Hemsworth as Thor, as well as Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie, and Natalie Portman returning as a different version of Thor. So, uh, yeah. Could be a lot of fun. I mean, I did like Taika Waititi's last Thor movie, and having another one is something to appreciate. Although we're now long overdue to have Taika Waititi's narrative feature version of Next Goal Wins, the awesome sports documentary from, what, 2014, I think it was, about the American Samoan football team, soccer team. But, uh, yeah, that has been finished for a long time, although I think part of the delay is thanks to uh, Army Hammer being in the cast, which is a little bit of an issue nowadays. But regardless, I'm looking forward to Taika Waititi's next goal wins, but I'm also looking forward to Taika Waititi's Thor Love and Thunder, which is out at the cinema this week. As is a film at completely the other end of the spectrum called Brian and Charles. This is a very low-budget, very small-scale British film, which actually premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and is expanded from a successful short which did the South by Southwest Festival a few years ago. It is about an odd, isolated man who lives in a remote, mountainous, rural area 
The film was shot in North Wales, although I'm not exactly sure if that's where it's set. But this guy is lonely, so he decides to make inventions out of the junk in his shed. And eventually, he makes himself a robot, which he dubs Charles. And the interactions between this odd man who makes stuff out of junk and his robot, which is basically a man wearing a washing machine over the top half of his body and a plastic mannequin head being perched on top of it, that is the robot that is invented, although it works and is artificial intelligent and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, what happens when a weirdo makes a robot out of junk? in a lonely, remote, rural area. And yeah, that sounds like it might be quite a bit of fun. So I do want to check out Brian and Charles at the cinema as well. On Netflix, we have an animated feature being released, which looks like it's got some profile to it. I think some of the people who were behind Kung Fu Panda have splintered off and formed their own company and have now brought us a feature-length animation called The Sea Beast, about a young girl who stows away onto a pirate ship, or possibly a whaling ship, one or the other, but stows away onto a ship and goes off in pursuit of sea beasts. And yeah, lots of Moby Dick stuff, lots of House Trainer Dragon stuff, potentially, but could be fun, the kind of glossy 3D CG-style animated feature, which we are so familiar with but a brand new company entering that arena could be quite interesting and the other interesting netflix release this week is yet another version of dangerous liaisons this one is a modern day updating similar to cruel intentions back in the 90s although this is a french version set in a high school in Biarritz in the south of France, a rich high school in Biarritz. And as far as I can tell, this version of Dangerous Liaisons is not told from the traditional viewpoint of the famous version, the Glenn Close, John Malkovich side of things. Instead, it's being told from the Uma Thurman character's perspective, or at least that seems to be what the gist is. So this naive girl enters this high school unaware that she has become the sexual betting plaything of these rich people in her high school, or in the modern day, these popular influencers at her high school. So yeah, that could be an intriguing twist, and Dangerous Liaisons is certainly the kind of story you can do a lot with, and telling it from a different perspective, potentially could be rather interesting and especially if you get into the actual discussions of what is going on in the plot of dangerous liaisons i mean in the post me too world how does the plot of dangerous liaisons function so yeah that could be very very interesting there's another animated feature on netflix i do want to get around to chicken hair and the hamster of darkness i mean quite apart from anything that is an extraordinary title There's also the documentaries. The highest priority at the moment is the true crime documentary, The Girl in the Picture. We also have the sci-fi thriller Spiderhead, 
with an excellent cast and director, a mainstream Hollywood cast and director. We also have a film about the Rwandan genocide, Trees of Peace, and the South African film about a bank siege which sparked the Free Nelson Mandela movement, Silverton Siege. On other streaming platforms, we have the films available through Disney+, Plus, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, which I'm weirdly fascinated by, and Fire Island, the queer Asian film, which has ended up on Disney+. Plus. There's the film released earlier in the year on streaming platforms, although that is also now available on Netflix, The Ledge, about being chased up a mountain by somebody who's just killed your friend. I'm still really, really curious about the Swedish film Pleasure, about a young Swedish girl entering the porn industry, and the overwhelming majority of the cast is made of real-life porn stars, so I'm very, very curious about that. And also, a gamble I made earlier in the year has paid off. Earlier in the year, I came across a film from Laos, of all countries. I mean, Laos is the kind of country where the film industry is basically one person. A woman named Matty Doe has made a couple of films in Laos, a couple of horror films in Laos, and her latest one, The Long Walk, came out earlier in the year. As an ageing Laotian man realises that when he interacts with a young woman who he starts to suspect is a ghost, he gets transported back in time and maybe can change his fate and the girl's fate, or maybe he can't, and maybe this whole cycle of life thing is a never-ending circle. But yeah, lots of Eastern mysticism and a ghost story and time travel, and I was very, very curious about it. But I held off on watching it because I suspected that eventually this film, The Long Walk, would end up on Shudder.com because Matty Doe's previous film, Dearest Sister, was on Shudder. So I hoped that this film, The Long Walk, would also eventually end up on Shudder and I therefore wouldn't have to pay for it. And my gamble paid off because this week... The Long Walk has shown up on Shudder. So, yes, the metaphysical Laotian ghost story, The Long Walk, is available on Shudder, and at some point I do plan on watching it. So that has been added to the streaming list as well. Before I leave you, a reminder that there was one yay in this particular episode, and weirdly, it's the one I had the least hope for. Three months available through Paramount Plus is actually really, really good. An excellent coming-of-age story, an excellent queer story, an excellent story about the traumas of living with HIV or potentially living with HIV. Excellent supporting cast. I mean, really, really good supporting cast. I mean, Judy Greer, Louis Gossett Jr., Ellen Burstyn, Amy Landecker, all really good actors appearing in this very small film. And I think it's very, very good. So if you do have access to Paramount Plus, don't overlook three months because I think it's excellent. And for me, it was a yay. And with that said, 
All that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay or Ma presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been host Connor Gaisley coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. <laughs>